seeing that I can't find our confession of faith, I'm not going to read it to you. I've seemed to misplace it, but for those of you who are checking your children in, um, just by way of reminder, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to to take them back there now. And uh, for the rest of us, if you have your Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to camp out at, and um, we are going to look again together um, at, uh, at this exorcism, at this, this um, uh, collection of demons that we have identified as, as legion, uh, that Jesus Christ, who, you know, when he encountered, when, when these demons encountered Christ, they, they trembled, they fell down before him, and he casts them out of the man into the herd of the pigs who run off of of the cliff. And and so I want to read just really the first 10 verses just to refresh us on on where we are. And we're just going to spend another week here together this morning. And so Mark, under the inspiration, the Holy Spirit of God, he recounts this historical event for us, starting in verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, chapter 5. Then... They came to the other side of the sea, okay, Jesus and his disciples, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he'd come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and with chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshiped him, right? Some translations again say he fell down before him. There's this begging posture. Verse 7, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for just this time that we have in your word. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be sensitive to what it is that we're talking about this morning, God, which really is the unseen realm, God. And God, we hope that as a result, we can be more grateful to you, for you, who's sovereign and powerful over all things, including a legion of demons. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been studying Mark chapter 5 over these last couple of weeks, uh, I personally couldn't help, um, couldn't escape the feeling as if I needed to spend a little bit more time on this particular passage and this issue of the demonic. Uh, I made mention last week that if you, you follow the biblical narrative, it seems specifically that demon possession was more prevalent in Christ's first advent. And, and I think 
that that's because of the significance of the gospel of God, that that's the significance of Jesus dying and resurrecting in this world, right? And, and as a result of, of Christ's active and his, his passive obedience, this world will never be the same, right? So our spiritual enemies, they, they would have tried to thwart that particular plan, this covenant that God promised to Adam and Eve after the fall in Genesis, what we see in Genesis, in the garden. And, and I truly believe as your pastor, that, that this world, meaning every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that, that it's adjusting, that it is um, still being subdued, if you will, 2,000 years later to the unshakable reality that Jesus, who's truly God, that he really did enter into our world as a man, that he really did suffer, that he lived in the shadow of our sins, that he took the punishment that our sin deserved, thereby plundering hell, if you will. And then he bodily and eternally resurrected, rose from the grave, again, in this world, right? That, that's what the whole of the biblical narrative, as we read it, right, moves toward, progresses toward, right? That, that's what we now live in light of, knowing especially that his resurrection means not just our spiritual resurrection, but one day, and we, we just sang about it a few moments ago, one day we will physically rise from the dead. That, that's the, the glorious gospel of God. Now, at the same time, I, I don't want us to be ignorant uh, uh, of a fierce cosmic battle that's presently being waged. It's, it's a battle in which our enemy, the devil, has been defeated, but not finally defeated in the same way that death has been defeated, but not finally defeated, right? So, so we can't afford to, to be ignorant of the reality of, of the unseen realm, right? There is such thing as angels, both fallen angels and unfallen angels, right? The fallen angels known better as demons that are among us. And, and what we experience in this life where sin and suffering still exists, what we experience is a spiritual battle, right? We have spiritual enemies that are waging war on the souls of man, right? Hell has not yet been shut up forever, right? That happens, as we'll talk about the end of the message this morning, that happens at the second advent. And while Christ is victorious now, there's still, again, this subduing work that happens as the gospel of God is announced to the nations. And, and while this is going on, as we're going and as we're doing this, our enemy, the devil, along with his demons, they seek to devour. And I want us to spend some time on that this morning. C.S. Lewis, in his work of fiction, called Screwtape Letters, which I highly recommend to you. He says this toward the beginning of the book. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an, ex an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, speaking of the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same 
delight. And, and by magician, what Lewis here means is the one who is obsessed with demons, sees them everywhere, sees them in everything. Now, because I'm preaching at Deer Park Fellowship this morning, and because we're a Reformed church and not, say, you know, Pentecostal, and because I know my own tendencies, I think that the danger lies not in the camp of the magician, but in the camp of the materialist. And, and that is what I want to push against this morning for us. And so if you're, you're taking notes, I'd have you write this first thing down. And as, as a church, we have to forsake a materialistic perspective of the world. Okay, as a church, we have to forsake a materialistic perspective of the world. Right? We are made body and soul. Right? We have a body, what we, what we see, and we have a soul, okay, a, a spirit that we can't see. And one day when we die, those of us who are in Christ, our souls will, will go to be with the Lord in heaven. And then one day when Christ returns, our souls will be reunited to our bodies, and, and we'll live forever with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. We see that in places like 1 Corinthians 15. We see that in places like Revelation chapter 21. But we're not the only creatures that are composed of what's seen and what's not seen, right? There, there are other parts of God's magnificent creation, right? We see, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, and the first part of verse 16, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, and then get this, visible and what? Invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. The Greek underlining that phrase that in the English translation is principalities or or powers, it means spiritual beings, spiritual beings. And spiritual beings are both fallen and unfallen, right? that, That's why elsewhere Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of, this, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, right? We see Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 12, now, if we were to, to take the man possessed by legion as a, as a case study today, right, and, we, and we would have the country's top doctors examine him and, and publish peer-reviewed medical journals on this guy, would demon possession even be allowed to factor into that at all? Is, is there any room for that? Or would we reduce his strength and his anguish and his self-harm to some materialist diagnosis that only acknowledges what's seen? Now, that's a legitimate question if we are to maintain, as the Scriptures do, that this was <clears throat> a demonic possession. Right? There are some things that are so evil that are so erratic, that are so bizarre, so very twisted that they rise to the level of being called rightfully demonic. Yet we, we rarely use that word, don't we? Again, just speaking here as a family this morning, 
And let, let me illustrate this further by bringing in just a couple of Old Testament passages. I'm going to read them, and then I'll, I'll explain a little bit more while, while I'm reading, reading them. But first, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Okay, the first two verses of, of, of Leviticus 20. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, saying, Quote, again, you shall say to the children of Israel, because this isn't the first time, again, you should say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who gives any of his descendants, okay, children, to Molech, and just note that name for now, he shall surely be put to death. Another Old Testament passage, Hosea chapter 4 verses 11 to 14, and I'm not expecting you to quickly turn, you know, turn there, but maybe just make a note in your worship God. Let's start with verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, note that, wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry, note that phrase, the spirit of harlotry, has caused them to stray, and they've played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. Verse 14, I'll not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifice with a ritual harlot. Notice that language as well. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Here, one final Old Testament passage, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 5. For Solomon, okay, D David's son, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, okay, which is in Canaan, and after Milcom, which is a, another name for Molech, the abomination of of the Ammonites. Okay, so in the Leviticus passage, we see the name Molech, which is also his name is Milcom in, 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 in first, the first Kings passage. Okay, this God was an, an Ammonite God, and the offerings of worship included child sacrifice, as we see in the Leviticus passage. Right? We also see in the Leviticus passage a warning from the Lord through Moses to the children of Israel to not give their children, right, their descendants as a sacrifice to Molech and not to even allow it amongst them. That's why the stranger is brought up in Leviticus here. Right? The, the Israelites were not even to allow the stranger to offer a child in sacrifice to Molech. Right? We also see this sort of pagan influence and participation being worthy of the death penalty, which was a righteous judgment based on equal weights and measures, Leviticus chapter 19. Now, in the Hosea passage, we see what's called ritual harlots, which were temple prostitutes of sorts that, that promoted all sorts of, of sexual perversions. And these were done as acts of worship to what the text calls, quote, wooden idols. If you're following with me, many biblical scholars believe this to be representative of the goddess Ashtoreth, which is mentioned in 1 Kings. The goddess is also known as the queen of heaven or Astarte or Asherah. We see, again, we see this goddess mentioned in Judges 2 and 3 and Jeremiah 7, other places in Jeremiah. We also see 
this god, this goddess was to be put away with along with Baal and second kings by, if you're familiar with King Josiah in the midst of Josiah's reforms to put away idol worship. But Ashtoreth was a goddess or, or god prevalent in Canaan, and the followers of this cult promoted all sorts of impure rites, which included sacrifices, it included cutting oneself, it included sexual acts, and this was done religiously. It was a, a religious experience of sorts. Now, what is this if not demonic? Right? What is this if not demonic? Right? We also see in the Old Testament just how quickly God's people, including a king of Israel, right, King Solomon, the wisest, the wisest man to ever live, how they became collectively desensitized to this type of wickedness. Right? They, they tolerated it. They even began to participate it and even promote it at times. And, and this participation in the demonic it was always met, if we were to trace it, it was always met with God's fierce wrath. Always. And I can't help but wonder if the starting point for Israel getting entangled in all of this, if the starting point for them was that they ceased to call the demonic demonic. Was that the starting point? Not calling what was demonic demonic. Now, I hope that you can see some parallels already with demonic worship and what is going on presently in, in our society. Right? This is nothing new. It's one thing we should know. But if I were to, to describe our society presently, right, I, I would say that our society, far from being atheistic, worships Molech and worships Ashtoreth. It's just dressed up in materialistic language. Right? What? What present-day society does is deny that there's this spiritual cosmic battle that's going on. Our society denies that there are powers and principalities behind the wickedness, and, and we're able to ignore this through the power of words, through the power of manipulating language. Right? Our spiritual enemies, they, they work craftily in this particular, in the, in the PR department here. Right? Modern society takes, for instance, the sacrifice of children, right? the, the murder of our descendants to the god of Molech, and instead calls it what? Women's health care or pro-choice. Right? The priests of the movement wear white medical coats. All right, and, and this great PR attempt by our spiritual enemies comes a, a cultural environment that fosters a low view of children that leads to this sort of wickedness being accepted or tolerated or, you know, we even become desensitized to the reality of it, right? We hear talk about how expensive children are, how inconvenient they are to our personal dreams, we view a family of five or six or seven plus strangely in our society. Mothers, right, the, the highest calling of all that would dare stay at home and shepherd and steward the souls of their children, have their work, their life's work constantly devalued. 
Right? We take animals and we treat them better than we do people created in the image of God. Right? All of this helps to accelerate a wicked, demonic plan that fosters a low view of children and a low view of the family and paves the way to the acceptability of child sacrifice in our society. But that's just Molech. Think of the worship of Ashtoreth and think about how our culture offers this type of worship up presently. Again, we, we use the power of words to downplay the demonic nature of things, right? Pornography, including what's in many shows that people watch is entertainment and art instead of lust or the viewing of adultery for pleasure. No-fault divorce in our society. It's somebody's fault, isn't it? Right? The LGBT plus movement and, and the promotion of Frankly, castration or the maiming of bodies of people, especially young people, instead of seeing the sinister and demonic and oppressive body and soul harming nature of that movement, instead, it's been sold as a civil rights movement. And it's wreaking havoc on individuals created in the image of God, reminiscent of Legion. And anyone who loves people in this movement enough to be truthful with them that loves them too much to not stand in the way, faces genuine consequences in our day and age. Now, this is all demonic. This is all demonic, and we must call it that. Right? We need clarity and conviction on this because it really is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. Right? Some may think that it isn't. Some may think it to be a political issue and that the church has no business in the political, and they would be dead wrong. In fact, to think of these issues as political demonstrates just how well we've assimilated into thinking about the world from a materialistic perspective. In contrast to this, maintaining a view of the world that is both seen and unseen allows you to have moral clarity in a world that calls what's righteous, right? We confessed this a moment ago, but what is righteous unrighteous and what is unrighteous, righteous, right? Maintaining a view of the seen and unseen realms can help you to have the courage of your conviction shaped by the word of God, which leads to gospel clarity, which leads to the redemption of individuals created in God's image. Having a view of the world that's seen and unseen, it'll help you to fear God who's over all things instead of man who's merely a creature, and we must fear the one to whom all men must give an accounting to. We must fear him. So that's the first thing. We have to repent of a materialistic perspective, right? Myself included. Secondly, our unseen enemy wants to destroy us. Our unseen enemy wants to destroy us. Right? In case that's not clear already. Right? When you have clarity on what's demonic you can also have clarity on where a demonic path leads. Right? You have clarity on what's demonic, you can have clarity on the path of the demonic. But verse 5 in Mark chapter 5, always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. The, the legion of, of demons that possessed this man sought, as we saw last week, sought to destroy this man made in God's image. And also remember from last week that 
that the demons destroyed the herd of pigs, right? A fate that this man would have had if he would have continued in his possessed state. But our, in, our enemy, our adversary, the devil, wants to destroy us, right? Peter warns of this very thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. I see this, quote, "...be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world." Right? You're not unique, in other words. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That word, adversary, in that passage is also translated as accuser. Accuser. It's no coincidence that the devil, who is a tempter, is also an accuser. Right? So that when you give in to temptation, he can accuse you. That's what he does, isn't it? And people who live their lives in this vicious cycle, they're wildly depressed and they're wildly defeated. Right? Peter says that Satan is a roaring lion. And that word roaring there, it means a, a full, loud, continued sound. In other words, it's unrelenting. It's unrelenting, and that word lion is meant to capture this idea of a predator. In other words, the devil is a loud, constant predator, and he wants to devour. He wants to swallow whole. He wants to destroy. He wants to gulp you down. And we shouldn't downplay or ignore the severity of this. So what should we do? What should we do? Point three here. Wage war with spiritual weapons. Wage war with spiritual weapons. But as we know, as in, you know, I think of this as just in some ways an extended meditation on this Mark 5 passage as we're bringing in other passages to, to help us see clearly on this theme of the demonic. But as we know, it's Jesus who has authority, the only authority to cast out the legion right? It's the only one with that authority, right? Furthermore, the confession of the church throughout the ages is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Think of Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 18 for a moment. I'll read it to you. He, speaking of Christ, said to them, speaking of the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Quote, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. And that phrase, shall not prevail, it's a significant phrase there. It carries with it this idea of storming the gates of hell. It's the picture that it carries with it, right? As Christians, we aren't cowering, timid, and afraid. Instead, we're marching in the victory of Christ and are, by God's grace alone, storming the gates of hell and the authority of Jesus. 
right? and, and our chant, our song, if you will, as we march, is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over our lives. He's Lord over all things, including the very gates of hell. He's Lord over there as well. And we see and we agree with Peter's confession when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this isn't exhaustive, but I want to highlight just a few ways in which we, we storm the gates of hell that are both defensive and offensive, okay? The first thing we can see, if we were to go back to that 1 Peter 5 passage for a moment, is the significance of sobriety and vigilance sobriety and vigilance. Again, we, it's in the first Peter passage I read a moment ago. Be sober, Peter says. Be vigilant, Peter says. Again, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Why be sober? Why be vigilant? Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a, luring, like a roaring lion. So first, we must be sober. And to be sober is to have self-control. We have to have self-control. Control. And self-control is a fruit of what? The Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, right? Christians, we have to have self-governance. We have to have self-governance. We have to have this when we're alone. We have to have this in relation to our family, right? We have to have this in the workplace. We have to have this in the public sphere. We have to have this in the church, right? We worship decently and in order. Our society in contrast, is marked by a lack of self-control of any passion, whether that be lust or hate, right? There's no such thing as blushing anymore or a healthy level of, of shame, right? Our society equates freedom and happiness with a lack of restraint, a lack of self-control. Everywhere we look, there's a celebration of being led by fallen and fleeting feelings, right? Our falling emotions, our fallen emotions, and the, the enemy who promises freedom when you follow your unbridled passions actually ends up enslaving you. It's where that path leads to. Right? You show me a person who perpetually lacks self-control, and underneath it all, I'll show you someone who's miserable. You'll find a miserable person. Right? So as Christians, we have to be sober-minded, and we have to model that sobriety. We must, by God's grace, practice self-control. Make it a habit to the glory of God. Right? Self-control is a great defense against the devil as you, along with the church universal, storm the gates of hell. But what a vigilance, right? That's sobriety. What a vigilance. Vigilance means watchfulness. Watchfulness. A pastor friend of mine calls this a lost spiritual discipline a law spiritual discipline. It means to be alert, to be awake, to not be taken by surprise, to not be lulled into temptation. In fact, it's to hate sin. And I've mentioned this earlier when we were doing the confession of sin, assurance of pardon. It's to hate sin at the temptation level. It's another important defense against our spiritual enemies. Now, how can you be vigilant? How can you be watchful, practically speaking. I could list several ways for us, but we see a very close connection between prayer and vigilance or watchfulness. We see that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 to 41. Then he, Jesus, 
came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says to his disciples as he's getting ready to face his arrest and his trial and his flogging and his crucifixion, that the way in which you combat temptation is by watching and praying. The the, the two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. A prayerful people is a watchful people. A prayerful people is a watchful people. Men, if you want to be vigilant in your home to help so far as it depends on you, ensure the spiritual temperature is high in your home, pray. If you're not praying, you're not being watchful. You're not. Next week, we're going to see Jairus, his daughter who died, and he was this religious figure. And I'm still thinking on whether or not I'm going to make this a point. In case I don't make it a point, I'm going to give you the point right now. Um, But it it strikes me later in Mark 5 that Jairus is the one that comes. And again, he's this well-respected religious figure. And he falls at the feet of Jesus begging, interceding for his daughter as the father, as the husband. And I think there's something significant there for us as husbands to model, to bring our children to Jesus. And a very practical way in which we do that, and as we cultivate watchfulness in our lives, is through consistent prayer. But a prayerful people is a watchful people. Matthew Henry says in this passage, he says, All are tempted, but we should be much afraid of entering into temptation. To be secured from this, we should watch and pray and continually look to the Lord to hold us up that we may be safe. So, as Christians, we need to improve by God's grace upon our prayer life. That's critical in our spiritual battle. Now, those are just a couple of defensive ways in which we're storming the gates of hell. And again, we could add to that. Um, But quickly, what, what of the offense What of the offense? And as Christians, as a part of the ones who by the grace of God stormed the gates of hell, we must herald a message of repentance and faith, which is the message that's counter but remedy to a possessed world. Remember, legion, which is a lot of demons, fell down at the feet of Jesus and begged and begged. And it's the same Jesus at which legion Begged at his feet. It's that same Jesus that we're heralding, that we're telling people about, right? That's the charge that Christ gave to the disciples before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We are in his authority alone, no one else's authority, but in his authority to go, to go with the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, to go and call for the repentance of sins and faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's how we mount an offense there. And finally, We should note and be encouraged by this. Christ will one day shut up the gates of hell forever. Christ will one day shut up the gates of hell forever. And don't you you long for that day? Don't you long for that day? I found myself longing for it more as I've kind of thought through our sermon this morning. 
We see back in Mark 5, verse 10, what I just mentioned a moment ago. Also he, the legion, begged him, Christ, earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. I mentioned last week that if we were to harmonize this with Matthew's gospel, that we get a sense that this legion perhaps could have had in view the, the last day, the day that Christ returns and, and makes everything new. But the deliverance of this man and the sending of the demons far from him is a foretaste of what will one day happen when Christ, in fact, does return. Right? With lots of symbolic language, we're told that much in Revelation chapter 20, start with verse 7, working down to 10. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose name is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christ, he dealt the decisive blow in his first advent, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. When he returns, though, this devil who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, this devil who's been behind every deception, this father of lies, this accuser, along with those earthly figures who have been antichrists, will finally be shut up into the lake of fire and brimstone and what the text describes as an eternal torment, an eternal torment. One expert commentator on the book of Revelation says this about this passage, the obvious purpose of these verses is to show the final and decisive victory of the seed of the woman. Think of the promise in Genesis 3.15. But it's the final and decisive victory over the seed of the woman, over the ancient foe. It is a great symbolic picture, and its one great teaching is clear beyond the possibility of any doubt or misunderstanding, namely that Satan and his forces must ultimately perish. Must ultimately perish. Jonathan Edwards that great American theologian and pastor and philosopher in the 1700s, he would use his struggles, even his own pain, to remind him of the unseen. Hell as it relates to pain and suffering he experienced. But he would even use things like death, which sounds morbid, to remind him that something better is coming, that the grave doesn't have the final say over us. And this morning, we can take something like this extended reflection on fallen angels, right, on the demonic, and we can remember that in contrast, the Lord has good angels that are all around us that sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory, Isaiah chapter 6. And we can also remember that not only do we join them in song now, but that we'll one day, when our faith becomes sight, that we'll join them in that heavenly chorus for all eternity. Right? The day the gates of hell are finally and decisively shut. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, thank you again for allowing us to just spend more time reflecting on 
the unseen realm, Lord, and help us to strike a biblical balance with that, God. And Lord, help us in all things to see that Christ is Lord over all. And we trust you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the portion of our...